a hell of a thing to have people fall dead from your aircraft because you hadn't even got them on the ground. The remainder of the shell went into the jungle about 20 or 30 metres and there were secondary explosions in there. There was no way we were going to win the war fighting it the way we were being told to fight it. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to a funeral I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the like something. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Today, we have a special episode for you. Angus Horden spoke with three veterans of the Royal Australian Navy Helicopter Flight Vietnam. The RANHFV was specifically formed to support Allied forces during the Vietnam War. This airborne component of our Navy was integrated with the United States Army 135th Assault Helicopter Company. Angus spoke to observers David Cronin and Bob Ray, and pilot Vic Batisse. I'm Angus Horton. And today I'm speaking from the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra with three distinguished and very humble Vietnam veterans. We have Vic Batisse. Hi, Angus. We have David Cronin. Hi, Angus. And Bob Ray. Hello, Angus. So, gentlemen, before we get to your combat experiences in Vietnam, we were hoping that you could tell us what actually inspired you to join the forces. So, Vic, let's start with you. Uh, it's something I wanted to do when I was still at school, but it was against the wishes of my parents. So I didn't get to join until I was 21, and then I made the move myself. I spent a few years as a, a clerk, went to uni for a while, and then finally made the break and joined the Navy. And do you come from a military family? Army, on my father's side, and hence that was probably why he objected to me joining any of the forces, because he had a brother killed in World War I and another brother badly wounded. Understandable. David, what was your background? I guess from a very early age, uh, when I was still at preschool, someone showed me a book of uh, naval combat. And uh, that day on, that's, I was known all through my school days as shippy <laughs> because that's all I could talk about. And I ended up joining the Navy when I was 17 and a half. That's about uh, as early as you could join it, wouldn't it be? Yes, well, well I was pretty close to 18. And family history in, in the military? None. And Bob, how about you? I can't remember not wanting to be in the Navy. I can remember riding around tractor around Bruce Rock and I could only ever think of being at sea or doing something a little more open air. was open air in the bush, but was a bit dusty. So I eventually got into the Navy at the age of 15 and a half when uh, I joined as an apprentice. I did my trade training at HMAS Narimba. I was in the first entry of apprentice trainers and uh, it became, over years, a particularly good training establishment, technically and academically. We were given every opportunity to matriculate, at the same time learning a trade. And how about your family? Was there a family background? My father served in the First War and the Second War. He put his age up to get into the First War with the British Army, put his age down to get into the Australian Army in the Second War and went to Syria. So for the benefit of our listeners, when was the Royal Australian Navy Helicopter Flight Vietnam Group formed and why? It was formed in, uh, well, the minister made the announcement in about July 1967. In fact, I happened to be at sea at the time uh, with 817 and anti-submarine squadron. We were partway through a Seattle exercises. When the announcement was made, a number of us uh, heard our names being called out on the PA system. And we were told that we were going to Vietnam to uh, serve with the United States Army. And we were then taken off the ship in Singapore when Melbourne arrived back down there, flown back to Australia. We got back here in about August of 67 for a period of about eight weeks intensive training because up until then we were flying anti-submarine Wessex helicopters. So now we had to re get uh, re-qualified on the Iroquois. Similar experience for you, Bob? Uh, I went with the second group. 
So I had a bit more training. I was converted from Navy to Army by an experience at the Jungle Training Centre in Canungra. Best advantage of that is we came out very fit. I was in the first contingent. My experience is very similar to, to Vic's in that sense and Bob's as well. It was the Navy's decision to send a group of, in fact, a group of four Wessex helicopters, people who had had experience in that, and in that regard, they had no idea of what the setup of a, an army helicopter unit was, attack helicopter unit was. So whilst the pilots, the maintainers and support people were fulfilling similar roles, although drastically expanded, the observers and air crewmen virtually had to find a role that fitted within the army, the US Army. So, but for Vietnam, you're integrated into a US helicopter company. So Vic, to your knowledge, had this ever happened before? Not to the extent. Uh, we were fully integrated with company commander being an American at this stage a lieutenant colonel and the senior naval officer became the executive officer. The closest I think our country first of all got was back in World War I but uh, when a couple of American battalions served in a push under General Monash but they still had their own complete units whereas we uh, fitted in and served with uh, the US Army ashore. We lived with them in their tents. We flew their helicopters. And depending upon our rank and experience, we uh, would either take orders from the Americans or we would give orders to the Americans in the, uh, in the unit, the company, the 135th. And I don't think that had ever been done before. And Bob, how did you find the integration with the Americans? The integration went very well, really, when you look back on it. But that had a lot to do with the flexibility of the sailors. They were very well trained and they were career people. They were all going to do at least 12 years in the Navy. They were really very professional about it. And when they were assigned to the assault helicopter company, they quickly learned what needed to be done and got on with it. We've got this designation for your unit called EMU. What does that stand for? It started out with the Americans saying, this is an experimental military unit. Okay, so that's quite ironic because our native Australian bird can't fly, yet you guys are all flyers. Well, yes, some so. people think helicopters can't fly, but <laughs> they did very effectively. Let's talk about these helicopters. So these are Iroquois. Yes. Vic, can you tell us a bit about these Iroquois? We had had some experience in the Bravo, the smaller helicopter with the smaller engine. When we went to Vietnam, of course, we found we were flying the larger body, the, uh, the H model. And uh, I recall I had a, a two hour checkout with an American Chief Warrant Officer too, who was on his second tour actually. So that was, that was it, we went up with, uh, with that. They would carry about, depending upon the weight of the troops, about 10 Vietnamese troops, plus two pilots, a crew chief who would maintain the aircraft to a large extent, and a gunner, so four crew. With the Australians who went out meaning to stay, we'd probably be lucky to lift six to eight of them, depending on the, the temperature and so forth. So the helicopter was just equipped with a, an M60 on either side, uh, room for that number of people, as I just uh, mentioned, about a two-hour endurance between refueling stops, and quite a robust uh, helicopter, very manoeuvrable, they were great to fly. Vic and David, you both go to Vietnam in the first contingent. Bob, you're in the second, and I understand there's actually four contingents over the duration. So for the sake of today's conversation, we won't get bogged down in the chronology and we'll basically just sort of share the same stories together. So Vic and David, you're in the first group. When did you go over there and what was it like? Well, I was had the unfortunate uh, posting of being a reserve pilot, which meant that I would only go over there if somebody was killed or wounded, and that's just what happened. Uh, the first lot went over there in October of 67. I uh, joined them in early March of 68 after Lieutenant Commander Pat Vickers had been shot and killed. So the others had all had uh, a lot of experience at that time and were some three months into the tour when I arrived as a replacement. I was over there in uh, October 67, but in April 68, I was sent up to Swanlock, about 30 kilometres further north, uh, as air advisor to the 18th Arvon. While While I was there, the 18th Arvon, about three weeks before, had been very badly morally and physically depleted because they'd run into a, an extremely large enemy force. So as a point of comparison, Bob, when did you arrive in Vietnam? I arrived in uh, Vietnam, October 68. 
and did uh, a full tour of 12 months in country. This whole thing came about because the Americans were very extended in their logistic train and they were having problems training pilots and maintainers. So they called upon Australia to offer some assistance and that was decided that the Navy would provide that assistance with uh, pilots, maintainers and support crew. That's exactly what we did for the next 12 months. It's interesting to note that the Americans also wanted some Skyhawk pilots, but because the American organisations, the Marines and the US Navy were flying into North Vietnam and over Cambodia, the government said, that's not on, we're not going to extend ourselves to that level. So it just ended up with the helicopter service from the Navy going in, with HMAS Sydney providing all the support of the Army, the Navy and the Air Force. So, Bob, you were an observer. Uh-huh. Typically, what did you do? I flew as a gunner first to get a feel for the whole operation and understand exactly what we were doing and how things were worked out. And when we say a gunner, <coughs> this is an M60? Yeah, machine gun off the side of the helicopter. It was about 80 hours I got up in that. But then a move was instigated by the Americans to move the 135th Assault Helicopter Company from Black Horse to Bearcat. So we had a whole new job to do. We had to transfer all our support equipment, all our living, our helicopters, our people into this blank space that we converted to a facility that could support 26 helicopters. And David, you were also an observer and a gunner. Initially, uh, while we were still in Vung Tau doing our initial training, I was sent to the Philippines to do a, a course with the US Special Forces. I came back from that and initially at Black Horse, I was the intelligence and operations officer. And then in the second six months, I was sent to Swanlock as air advisor to the 18th Arvin. But because they were reduced in what they were doing, they were not doing any major operations, they were all minor patrols. I spent a lot of time flying with a US bird dog pilot to do forward air control with attack aircraft to support those patrols. So David, let's not go off that bird dog pilot. So they were the light planes that the Yanks used as observers. Yes, it's very hard to describe because you can't register a bird dog civilly, mainly because the flap area, which is the thing that provides lift and drag, was too big for a civil aircraft. In fact, with a bird dog, virtually half the wing unfolded when you dropped full flap. Now, Vic, you're a pilot. How long had you been flying before you were deployed to Vietnam? I graduated in August of 66, and uh, because I was the only helicopter pilot there, I had a real quick track. I did about 12 weeks on the Iroquois, straight to the front line, uh, Wessex Anti-Submarine Squadron. I did my qualifications at sea in Melbourne and then uh, taken off for uh, the, the helicopter flight. So I graduated in August 66. I was in Vietnam in uh, March 68. So I want to talk now about the flying of these gunships. So the Royal Australian Air Force, with its flight plans... I understand had limitations for when they wanted to fly, but you guys didn't have those limitations. And I understand you were sort of running almost a 24-hour service. Certainly we would uh, we'd be up at first light, airborne, and could be back late in the evenings. Most of the evenings we were free when we got back, which could be late. Sometimes we would be required to be on a ready reaction force. So we'd take our turn with the rest of the companies of that battalion in providing that service. Tell us about that ready reaction because you would be called out. What could you be called out to do? Well, if uh, a unit got into strife somewhere and needed to uh, be reinforced, we'd take them in. The problem with the call out, as I recall on one occasion, we'd been working down in the Delta. So during the day, you get the lie of the land and you, when it turns dark, you've got a pretty good idea where you're going. This particular night, we were called out to the heavily tindered uh, area quite a long way north-northeast of Saigon. And uh, we'd never been there during the day. The flight leader on that night was Lieutenant Bruce Crawford. He did an excellent job, but we had to reinforce people. And he did that approach with uh, 10 aircraft behind him to a single light source in the dark of night. And that was a bit tricky. Can we talk about how exposed you are? So you're a pilot and you guys are observers and gunners. How exposed are you when you pull into these zones? The enemy can certainly hear you, they can see you, and they're waiting for you to get down when you're most vulnerable. 
That's true. Uh, so in the approach, if you're leading the flight, the aim would be to keep your speed up as long as possible, but you have to bear in mind that you had another nine aircraft behind you. So you couldn't just do a rapid deceleration and they would end up everywhere. That was a, a bit of a conflict. So sure, once we would get down, say, below 20 knots, you're very vulnerable. We would have our outdoor uh, uh, M60s suppressing into the tree lines. So that would help us somewhat. But all we had to protect ourselves was a chest plate, which would fit sort of from the waist up to uh, the chest. Everything else was really exposed. So uh, areas, arms, legs, heads, totally exposed. And you can recall taking fire often enough? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the Americans and Vietnamese were a little too willing to expose their troops. And that was the main concern. It was a hell of a thing to have people fall dead from the aircraft because you hadn't even got them on the ground. Some of our people would take uh, hits too. We had crew who were uh, killed or wounded. And sometimes some of them made for a good story too. Or I recall a crew chief on the first time I was in action that uh, took a few hits. Crew chief had his machine gun, had the bottom part of his thumb shot off and the bottom part of his earlobe. So that's a good story to tell his children and grandchildren, but he survived that. And David, you're on the M60. You're clearing these trees? Only initially. Then I came back as the, as I said, the operations and intelligence officer for the first six months. And then the second six months, I went up to Swanlock. There, uh, I was there with two special forces officers. Adjacent to us was a camp of provincial reconnaissance unit. These were ex-North Vietnamese and Viet Cong cadre who had been turned by the CIA and worked under the command of a, a US captain who in fact was a, an ex-British paratrooper. And the, the fact that the provincial reconnaissance unit, which I think the total number was about 18, that they had, he had there, they were able to get into the enemy camps and get, the intelli get that intelligence. The intelligence that, we got, that I got from the 18th Arvin and myself and the US Special Forces officers was up to date and accurate and was passed up to the intelligence command in Benoit. And I guess my great frustration is that the Americans did absolutely nothing about it. Nothing. And it wasn't until the Australians set up coral or attempted to set up coral in Balmoral that the Americans only gave the Australians part of the information that we'd been sending through on what was there. Bob, can you tell us about your role? Once we made the move and re-established ourselves and got organised so that we could do the job, and sometimes you've got to remember that the concept of an assault helicopter company, when it was originally put together, was for the company to be able to move from one secure base to the next secure base as the war advanced. But as we know, in Vietnam, there was no advance. It was mainly operating from the one spot. So once we got that organised so that we could operate, I went down to the headquarters of the 164th Aviation Battalion, Aviation Group, and became one of the operations officers down there. And I worked in that job for two and a half months. Vic, in all the operations that you were doing, you're predominantly helping the Americans and in particular the South Vietnamese, but did you come across many Australian troops? Periodically, we did. And it was an interesting time because the Australians went out there generally with the intent of staying, so they were heavy. So we could carry far fewer of them, which meant we had to watch our power very carefully, picking our spot to land because they were unprepared sites you didn't want to come in and run out of power and hit the dike or something like that but the australians the good part about operating with them was that i don't recall ever going into an opposed site they had enough sense that they didn't want their guys falling dead from an aircraft or wounded before we got them on the ground and could orientate themselves to walk up to the enemy on their own terms so uh, that was the good thing about them uh, very professional and they did a wonderful job down in Phuc Thuy province and actually we've interviewed many of the australian soldiers from vietnam and they're approach to war was very different to the American. And it's not just restricted to the soldiers, even the way you're conducting your warfare and how the Australians are doing it differently to the Americans. Yes, of course, we were part of the 135th, uh, uh, eight pilots. We had uh, four crewmen. Uh, we've just mentioned what the observers were doing. We also had a lot of the maintainers. When they could find a bit of time, they would leap on board and, and operate as a gunner. But the thing about it is this, the person who controlled that action was the ground commander. So even if our command and control, in fact, I remember one time uh, the battalion 
commander was overflying and this was known to be a bad area and he cautioned that we perhaps shouldn't go into this particular site. But we did because the ground commander had the control. So it didn't matter whether it was an Australian flying the aircraft or leading the push at, at that point. If the ground commander wanted those forces on the ground, we took them in. I can imagine there must have been a few times when you stopped to pick someone up that they would have been very happy to see you. Yes, at the end of the day, they'd come back uh, weary, either from uh, the dust of the day or when the monsoon hit, they'd be covered in uh, in mud and wet. The Australians, uh, of course, staying out there much longer, they would come back on board, they're smelly and so forth, uh, having been out there for weeks in some respects. Uh, having said that, uh, occasionally we carried some of their uh, tracker dogs, these big black uh, German shepherds, I think they were, and they were sparkling, these Troopers always maintained them to absolute wonderful standard. Do any of you remember being shot at when you were in operations? Absolutely. In the bird dog, quite often. But you, usually with the bird dog, no one would shoot at you unless you actually dropped the nose to fire off a marking rocket. So you could fly around all day and they would never shoot at you because they knew if they fired a shot at you, all the attack aircraft in the area would come down on their head. Can we talk about some of these night actions that you guys had? Yes, well, they were usually to sort out something that had gone wrong throughout the day. Normally, the, if we're carrying the and the idea would be to take them out in the morning. They would come back at night, presumably to provide some protection to the villagers, because if the troops weren't there, the VC would come in and they did some pretty brutal things to get their way in the villages. So there were occasions where, on one particular occasion, they were stuck in the delta, still in action. So initially we had to bring some more forces into them so that they could then fight their way out of it. And on this particular occasion, of course, uh, the Iroquois didn't have radio altimeters. As you're getting close to the ground and you had to do dikes all over the place, you didn't want to slam into one of those at night. So we'd have to go through, will we turn lights on or will we not? Well, we did decide we would put our landing lights on in the flare just in the last few moments just so we could find a spot to get on the ground. And then as soon as we're on the ground, the lights would go out, unload the, the troops and take them back to their base. So the main problem about the night was, is the navigation, keeping formation of 10 aircraft while they were tactically manoeuvring, and then getting out, quite apart from the fact they're getting pretty damn tired. At that point, I can imagine that you're the perfect target again for these RPG weapons to be used against you. The onus on that first chopper going down in the right spot to mark for the rest of the guys following is so critical. If you were going to be attacked, typically, where were you most exposed? Would they let a couple of birds down and then there's enough targets or no. what would happen? Well, what would happen, the uh, the marker would come out of the CNC aircraft and he would do it from 1,500 feet or so. They'd get pretty good at dropping it. If they didn't drop it right on the spot, they would then give us some grid directions with respect to that. It's where we would go. But our aircraft, we would go in with the entire formation of 10. If it was a small site, we might drop it back to five. On occasion, I remember we would only have maybe two at a time. But the idea was we would want to get the maximum number of troops on the ground so they could set up a defensive position as quickly as possible. So if it was possible, we would take every aircraft there and uh, we would fly it down. The approach would culminate in a flare. So we'd keep our speed as long as possible and then you'd haul the nose up, making sure that you kept the tail rotor out of the water in winter. Otherwise, it was tending to cause tail rotor failures. And we laughed at that a bit because we had one of the sister companies uh, during the monsoon reported a high occurrence of tail rotor failures. And we said, yeah, we know what you're doing. You're just holding your flare too late, putting a tail rotor into the water. Because in the summer months, when you're in the dry, there was a, what we called a stinger, a metal a rod came back down behind the tail of the aircraft and you would feel it touch the ground. No, that was the warning. Yes, those approaches uh, were, were, uh, had to be carefully, carefully manoeuvred. We didn't want to stay too long in that period of time at low airspeed because that's when we would receive fire. And Bob, did you lose any mates or know of friends that were killed in action over there? Oh, yeah. One of my sailors, uh, leading air crewman ship, the aircraft was hit. Captain of the aircraft, we think, was killed pretty much instantly. Co-pilot took it down. Ship kept firing at the source of the fire that had brought them down until the aircraft impacted with the ground, exploded, and they were all killed. And how about you, David? I guess not personally, but in, in our first contingent, we lost four. As Vic mentioned, Pat Vickers was shot and killed. And then a gunship going down to the Australian Task Force was shot down. The whole crew went, one of our pilots and one of our air crewmen who was the gunner. 
So I suppose that's the problem with a vehicle that if they hit the vehicle and it's a successful hit, the whole vehicle goes down. The whole, yes, correct. And all the crew, and if you've got so many Pongos on board, they all go with you. They do. That was a gunship, so they had no troops on board. The other thing was the, the only occurrence that I had in the air was we were over the coast in the bird dog and we saw, well, I saw on the beach a huge pile of something under cover of coloured cloth and people running from that into the jungle. On one side, I could see the weapons cases and ammunition cases. So I called up to see if there was a, a warship somewhere off the coast. And it was one of the Australian warships going up to up north and gave them the coordinates. And we gave the pilot flew over it to give, it a, give them an on top of where the, the target was. So the first round came in and I tried to tell the pilot that we needed to move about half a kilometre south away from the target because as an army pilot, he was used to flying around the target because army artillery went up in a big lob and came down in that circle. He wasn't aware of naval gunfire. So when the first round came through, it shot away half of the thing on the target on the beach. The remainder of the shell went into the jungle about 20 or 30 metres and there were secondary explosions in there. The pilot never saw those because the next thing I knew was him screaming, what was that, as we went up to about 2,000 feet and about a mile away. So obviously you connected with some pretty serious uh, ammunition or something. A five-inch shell has a fair impact when it explodes, but it was more the shock waves than any shrapnel that, that sent him into... Hysterics. With regard to the aircraft getting shot down, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that all the crews perished all the time. In fact, pilots did a damn good job in aircraft that were badly damaged in forced landings. So there were a large number of them. They got the aircraft onto the ground safely. And uh, there weren't a lot of RPGs back uh, then too. Early on in February, we lost an entire aircraft. They went down with the entire crew. One of the reasons that Tony's total crew went down, he was flying gunship. And it was only about three minutes after takeoff from Black Horse as he was heading down to do support for the Australian Army that day. Now, these gunships were so heavy, they couldn't hover. And they would do sliding takeoffs to get airborne. We'll talk about that in a minute, perhaps. So at the time that he either had this RPG knocked his engine out or the engine failed, he was only at very low level. And we think that he saw a small opening head just beyond the trees. And he used as much rotor inertia as he could to make the edge, and they probably would have all survived. However, just where he fell on the ground, there was a bloody big B-52 bomb crater, and that's in, they went with full ammunition and fuel. But having said that, a lot of people made successful uh, landings. Another friend of mine took about 28 holes once from a, a combat assault, losing fuel rapidly. So uh, he managed to make it probably half a kilometre away from the landing zone and got it on the ground safely, and they all, all got out of it. So it was a pretty good flying just one incident that the maintainers just proved their worth. The aircraft came back. It had one skid hanging, one of the skids underneath hanging. The other one was not there at all. And he also had 128 bullet holes in and around the transmission. That's the area between the engine and the bit that goes to the rotors. The pilot managed to hover that aircraft over off of the ground so that the maintainers could put new skids on. They then put it down on the ground and that night they did a complete engine and tail shaft change and the aircraft was flying the next day. Naval Airman Sinclair was a gunner in a helicopter and he was severely wounded through the head. And this is one of the terrible stories of war. He remained a paraplegic and completely dependent on other people for the next 40 years before he died. Those sort of injuries were not uncommon. Australians were lucky. We didn't have too many of them. And then there's the press on regardless attitude, which can come up. And we had one incident where one of our pilots kept flying in very bad visibility and eventually struck power lines and crashed and took the whole crew out and that situation. So you have things like that. But it was very easy to become press on regardless in that period of time. And the momentum builds up. So by the end of it, you'll do anything. Were you guys exposed at all to the spraying, Agent Orange, DDT, on base or anywhere in your operations? We knew it was going on, but it tended to be going on further down in the Delta, where we did actually go. And in fact, uh, who knows uh, whether... 
people would have been affected by it because we'd fly down there, we'd move troops around, and then sometimes we'd be held on the ground for ready reaction. So we'd be wandering around, lying on the ground and so forth. So we knew it was going on, but I never actually witnessed it. We've talked a lot about the hardships of war, and in particular, Bob, that sad story about your mate. How about some of the humorous things that happen? Your mate. <laughs> David's mate, who was his boss, I suppose. This guy, he was something else. He used to roar around the countryside. This is the liaison officer, the colonel, ex-colonel, British Army, and then... Boom. And he used to roll around in this big three-quarter tonne truck and he'd go anywhere in this darn thing. Jeff, he, he used to come down to Blackhorse, drive this truck down to Blackhorse, which was, was about a 20k drive, but he'd come down at night time in the afternoon, in the morning, and he'd just come down to say hello and then he'd drive back again. So he's gone outside <laughs> the base, he's exposed, he's by himself in a truck. Yeah, and where he was at Swanlock, where I went later, it was about a 20-kilometre drive on a, a dirt road. Hostile dirt road. All he had on that on that truck was a, an M60 on the back. Which is not much use to him if he's behind the wheel. <laughs> no. <laughs> but just one other funny story. When I first arrived at Swanlock, I was standing with the two American Special Forces officers and all of a sudden I got this punch on the shoulder and this exclamation, you Aussie so-and-so. And the two Americans were absolutely aghast because they thought we were both going to go for our guns and kill one another, the, the, way, he, the way he... But then he hugged me and I hugged him and they were still aghast. <laughs> How about you, Vic? Any funny memories? Well, there's one particular action, I suppose, a bit of black humour... As it turned out, we had an operation southwest of Saigon one afternoon and uh, we knew it was opposed. We were warned about it. But as we were on finals, I heard this great roar just as I was on the left-hand side in, in the staggered trail and we had these F-100 supporting us that particular day and they were dropping some pretty heavy stuff. They did some wonderful flying. So incoming we got wasn't all that bad. However, one of the aircraft captains in the preceding flight was wounded and he called up and uh, he said, I've been hit in the ankle and I'm having trouble flying it. Look forward and we could see this uh, Huey down low yawing all over the beach ball. Godfrey was our flight leader that day. He said, well, just get power in and climb. Anyway, next thing we see the aircraft adopt a perfect... Oh, yes, he called up. I'd been shot in the ankle and my co-pilot's dead. And as I say, a few moments after that, it adopted the perfect climb and started reaching for the sky. What had happened was, yes, sure, the aircraft captain was badly wounded and shattered ankle. He looked across at the co-pilot who was slumped in his seat and he saw, it had his visor down, you see, it was a tinted visor and there was a bullet route had gone in through the visor. What had happened, then the bullet actually exited the helmet between the man's skull and the helmet. So it was just the concussion momentarily knocked him out and then he recovered. He was still in the world of the living and took over. So we, uh, we all had a bit of a laugh about that one later in the evening of, of that particular story. The Royal Australian Air Force is operating in Vietnam, but the Air Force is running its operations quite differently to you guys. Did you see any difference of operations, Vic? There would have been differences because they principally supported the Australian Army. And as we mentioned earlier, the Australian Army didn't want to put their people in against hostile fire. That would be just a waste of time. But the Air Force did a great job with the Special Air Service. Did a lot of work with them, taking them out to various places and the SAS would go on the ground. They didn't want to be seen, of course. They would do a reconnaissance and then they would come back and report and then missions would be worked out on that. So there was much of that done. The Air Force had gunships. Uh, they had the bigger Huey with, uh, with the L-13 engine. So they were better placed than our poor old gunship uh, people in, in the Taipans. Early on, they did get a lot of criticism. Back uh, around the time of Long Tan, when they only had the Bravo as a sport and they had few of them. And during uh, that particular action, they were reluctant to be committed. But there was a flight lieutenant, Frank Riley, who said, the hell with that. Uh, they're out there in contact. They need the support. I'm going. Who's coming with me? And there was a group captain there at the time who was playing the difficult line because OPCOM was not going to let them go. And they said, well, they need the help. And uh, away he went. And rightly, the weather was absolutely lousy. The first pass, they missed a spot and had to come back around. But if Frank and, and the other aircraft hadn't gone there, Long Tan might have been a different story. The D Company might have been overrun. They dropped uh, ammunition to them as the uh, the company was nearly out of action. So for a lot of the criticism that the Air Force have had over the years, uh, and I've served with them as an instructor after Vietnam, 
Uh, I had a lot of time for the air crew themselves. They did have some difficult uh, difficulty in, in, in dealing with OPCOM, particularly early on when, as I say, they only had a few Bravos. Later on, they got more aircraft and they got a bit more active. Vic, before we leave Long Tan, I've spoken with guys in Delta Company who were the guys fighting and they would testify that they were out of ammo and even though they had the howitzers from base keeping them alive because they were keeping the enemy obeyed, they were all out of ammunition effectively and they were desperate for that. So your insight with regard to that operation is critical because if they'd run out of ammo, as you say, there may not have been a Delta company. Well, that's right. We're already in the position, as I read some reports later, where they prepared to call the artillery right down on themselves. And the New Zealand artillery commander questioned it, and the answer was, uh, do it. So, yes, uh, Frank Riley and the other crew, they did wonderful work that day. So was he reprimanded for that, even though he really saved them? No, he got out of by this, by saying, I signed for the aircraft out of Vung Tau. The decisions are mine until I return it to Vung Tau. He was a no-nonsense fellow, but far from being reprimanded, he did actually get uh, the Distinguished Flying Cross and well-deserved too. And you could chalk up some serious hours, up to 140 hours a month and, and plus, I've heard. I see you nodding, David. You. Oh, yes, well, I, I, I used to try and keep track of it when I was at Black Horse, but, of course, the pilots would keep track of it as well, and it was very easy to get up to 120 hours in, in nothing flat. 120 was the norm that we tried to keep people down to, but sometimes with illness or R&R, you would go above that and... Uh, I got extended about three times and got to 149 before I was grounded for a couple of days. We touched on our support guys. And again, your machines were only as good as the guys that kept them flying for you as well. Right. Well, at uh, Black Horse, we had uh, probably a 30 maintainers. 20 close to that. Okay. Various experiences. And uh, they would be rostered on. They would generally work all night because we'd get back maybe late and we'd need aircraft early next morning. So the whole routine, they would do that major maintenance. I think they only had one sort of hangar, which gave them a bit of shelter from the roof, from the, the weather, but both ends were open. So to meet the needs, they would work all night to keep us going the, the next day. And Bob, you concur with that? Oh, yeah. They are outstanding. They'd uh, work all night and then go flying the next morning. Uh, if they had all the aeroplanes up and the maintenance level was, work level was low, they'd go. I'd just like to touch on something about the Air Force. Their pilots were trained exactly the same as our pilots. Their level of professionalism and their determination to do a good job was exactly the same as ours. What was happening was that there was a slight imbalance with the command trying to preserve the assets, material and personnel to a much greater degree than what the Americans cared for. They liked more, a little bit more and a bit more and that would be almost enough. That was their approach to the fight. And so we got involved in that, and our people reacted as Australians. Said, right, you told us to do it, we'll get on with it. And arguably, Bob, the Australians were very well trained and did their job very well. So the Americans would have really appreciated you guys being with them and were happy to use you as much as they could. The American pilots would probably come over there with a bare minimum 100 hours, perhaps, on type, where even with our first flight, uh, I probably had the lowest of hours. I had about seven or 800 under Melbourne, and I had an instrument rating and so forth. The Americans would not even venture into doing any instrument flying to cover the night and bad weather situations. I do remember uh, it was during the monsoon, we would get some fogs of a morning, but it was very low fog and cloud. So we would line up on the runway and one at a time, take off, climb up through it, and then we would form the, uh, the flight on top. One particular American pilot, we knew he was not confident in <laughs> instrument flying, so it always put him up as number 10, and he would tear down the runway to get maximum speed, and then he would just pull back. And by the time he was getting almost to an unusual attitude, he would break out the top. So there was a big uh, difference uh, in the experience level of the new American pilots. But also in the company, we had second tour people, as I mentioned earlier, Pappy Chandler. Uh, he was on his second tour, and they, they quickly, like us, they came up to speed. But it was a big, big ask to have somebody of 100 hours total uh, come and do combat assaults, flying in uh, close formation hour after hour, 
in that stressful condition. So Being uh, shot at. Well, the other thing about it was it wasn't always just being shot at. To get from A to B, you can imagine there were a lot of artillery bases. So you had to then decide if you were going from A to B, you'd check on the map to see where the artillery bases were, because, and then you would call them to find out where they happened to be firing at the time. So they'd then pick your way around it. So there was the navigation aspect that had to be uh, carried out as well. And from time to time, it did happen that everything was going tickety-boo, flying along, and you would get over the fire support base that you'd spoken to, something would happen with a, a mortar round or two came from somewhere. Then they would call you firing 360 degrees out of the compound. And you suck your teeth and say, where does that leave me? Well, all you could do was keep going. And Vic, you're talking about tours. How long was a typical tour? Tour was 11 to 12 months. Each of our units would go up there, normally 12 months. I only did about eight and a half months. I finished Pat Vickers' time and came back in the last of the first flight, which worried me for years. I felt I hadn't done enough. And in fact, I came back and I went straight to sea as a search and rescue pilot on Melbourne in 69. And I wrote a letter to the captain asking to go back, but it was ignored, probably luckily for me. <laughs> and equally, you guys were all volunteers. Yeah, well, we were professional. We were in there for our period of time. I think a lot of us at the time were still on our short service commissions as pilots. Probably, oh, yeah. probably had a, about six years to go. But uh, I think all of us on the first flight actually took permanent commissions. Do you know of anyone that actually got shot down more than once? Uh, yes. Yeah, Mickey Perrin. Well, poor old Tony Casadilla, he was shot down within about a month of arriving there and uh, they had to defend themselves, which they did. His gunship was mm. uh, badly hit on that time. And, of course, then there was a tragic one where uh, he was he hit going? and he just had... He was too low and had no performance and then made the clearing but hit a crater. So it did happen. Uh, we had also some Americans. I remember one chap had a very bad trip no sooner arrived, his first incident wasn't being shot down, but he was number 10 refuelling back at the base one day and a rather impatient Chinook pilot wanted to get on the last refuelling point and kept taxiing, taxiing, taxiing and hit the tail radar of our aeroplane. So this particular fella was badly concussed in hospital for a while and then it was only a short time after that he was co-pilot out west of uh, Saigon at Dakwa and the aircraft captain regrettably decided to engage uh, an uh, NVA platoon they found on the ground and the aircraft with a slick and the aircraft captain was killed and this poor old co-pilot had to get him back and uh, get the whole aircraft back and recover. So some people did go through a torrid time. Whilst you guys were in Vietnam, what was your perception as to how the war was going? It was completely at odds with what the US press was reporting to the States. I don't know who they were talking to, but as far as I was concerned, we were gaining ground all the time, particularly when I was up at Swanlock. But the American press were reporting huge American casualties, losses, and it was just completely at odds with what was happening on the ground. Bob, did you read the same story? We were making progress, but we weren't finishing off. And that was the problem. It was, we were certainly capable of defeating them outright. But because you had this artificial finish line of North and South Vietnam and you had inhibitions to be able to go forward, there was no way we were going to win the war fighting it the way we were being told to fight it. We saw from time to time we'd go back to the same area so we knew that, that we weren't making the progress we should. We're also forbidden to pursue the NVA across the Cambodian border. Well, they set up all sorts. They, they could poke faces out across the bottom, we couldn't touch them. So we had so many imperative laid on us that, or limitation. We also had the situation of, uh, as still happens regrettably, it seems to be in the wars, the objectives of the political end and the diplomatic end and the military end never seemed to coincide as to what they're really trying to achieve. I think we could have prevailed. In fact, after Tet, the VC had been decimated. But of course, there have been too many fibs told prior to that that the press then lost faith in reporting. The politicians had already decided they wanted to get out. And uh, we had those limitations imposed upon us. Unfortunately, we see it repeated time and time again. And it started in Korea. We stopped at the 38th parallel. If you're going to fight a war and lose lots of people on the way to it, then really you've got a duty to finish it off. Schwarzkopf ran into the same problem in Kuwait. Diplomatic, the political and the military just don't have a common thread. Mind you, the military changed tactics here. 
Early on, just before I got there, a good deal of night work was undertaken by the assault helicopter companies. They would uh, get airborne with a command and control helicopter, a slick, which would have uh, searchlights on it, and a gun team behind them. The idea being to deny the VC and the NVA the use of the ground at night. It was very difficult flying, uh, so I didn't do that particular lot, but it was effective because the, the night eventually, when we stopped doing that, the night became open to the NVA and the VC. And then they changed the tack to go to search and destroy. That is to track down any bases, kill as many of the opposition as you could, which was all very well. But if they didn't want to fight, you wouldn't find them. When they wanted to fight and were open for business, well, we knew about it because we'd take heavy losses. And it was much later on, I think, when West, Westmoreland was removed from the scene. I think it was General Abrams. Abrams. He started to reintroduce the night operation. Night ops. Now, the Australian Army, of course, they were aware of this and they were trying to stop the movement of VC at night and their resupply. Now, early on, of course, we only had about one battalion up there. We didn't have enough to do the operations and keep Nui Dat safe as well. So the commander at the time decided he would put mines in, in the known areas where the VC went. The One of the battalion commanders pleaded with him not to do it, and he was right. They did go ahead and lay the mines, but the VC got very adept digging the damn things up and repositioning, and we had many of our soldiers are now limbless because of our own mind. But they had the right idea. They needed to try and stop the movement of the VC and NVA at night, that is to stop their resupply and to keep them out of the villages. If that had continued with the uh, helicopter companies doing that sort of thing, we might have made progress much quicker before the American public and the politicians lost their heart. David, can you tell us a bit about the Long Region? The Long Region had uh, a number of names. It was known as War Zone D, the Iron Triangle, and a few other names in Vietnamese. It was an area about 50 kilometres from north to south. At the northern end, it was probably about 40 kilometres wide. At the southern end, just north of Swan Lock, it was probably about two or three kilometres wide, and it was triple canopy jungle. It was the highest concentration anywhere in Vietnam of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops, along with supplies, ammunition, weapons, heavy mortars, light mortars, heavy machine guns, rocket propel grenades, you name it. It also had a training area in there. And that the, the, the southwest corner of that area, just across from Swanlock, was where the support bases Coral and Belmoral ran into trouble. Vic, can you tell us the size of the Australian contingent? There were about 48 of us, 23 some maintainers, and then there was a collection. We had a cook and a steward and a sick birth attendant and an administration fellow as well, and we've already had the eight pilots, four air crewmen and the uh, four observers. And mentioning again that it wasn't just the air crewmen who flew, the observers did uh, before they actually got into the operational world, but the uh, maintainers were tigers. If they uh, weren't used or required during the day, they'd jump in as gunners. So that was uh, the number of Australians out of about something of the order of 300 people in that company. We had about 22 slick CH models split between two platoons, which were generally uh, headed up by the US Army captain had one, a Royal Australian Navy lieutenant ran the other one, and we had a third platoon, which was the gunships, and they had about eight Charlie models, which used to carry uh, the 7.62 millimeter stuff. They carried mini guns with forward firing, which were like a Gatling gun. They carried uh, 7.62 millimeter rockets and uh, grenade launchers in various uh, configurations. We had uh, two other sister companies that served in Benoit. Uh, we often uh, criticised that because they had uh, real hooches to live in and air conditioning where we had tents and duckboards and all that sort of thing. But we were nevertheless uh, part of a, a battalion, as I say, the two other companies were elsewhere. So that's the sort of thing. Each day we would be required to put up 10 slicks, up to four gunships, a command and control helicopter. We also developed a concept for a smoky. What the one helicopter was uh, modified so that it could produce large amounts of smoke. So particularly down in the Delta, where the opposition, when they're open for business, used to fire from Nipper Palm, he would fly in there at high speed and lay a smoke screen to uh, try to protect us on, on our running. And then there was a, uh, a spare. So all up every day, we'd put up uh, about 15 slicks and, and four gunships. Bob, can you tell us about the command over there? Yeah, there's one thing that I would like to bring out, and it's a 
it's a story that can be vouched for by Tiger Lyons, who was a chaplain at the time, Catholic chaplain, and he came up to spend a couple of weeks with us. He didn't want to go home. He just loved being with the lads. Anyway, he wanted to get airborne, so Zork, my boss, used to take him. Well, one day they were over a small area where there was a very large home, a substantial home, and uh, the ground commander said, take it out, bring it to the ground. And Zork said, there's women and children down there, I can't do that. And he said, bring it down. And so Zork ordered the gunships in and they took it to the ground. He was pretty upset for about the next two weeks and Zork was a pretty hard guy to upset, but he wasn't happy with that. Ground commander was the boss of the show and the air commander couldn't interfere with what he wanted to do. Guys, the war goes on, but eventually you get to come home. What sort of reaction did you get from the public when you came home, David? Nothing. I arrived in uh, Sydney and I was met by a naval officer with the contingent that I was with and he stayed with us until we could get, it was late at night and he stayed with us until we could get a flight back to whichever capital city we came from but there was just no reaction at all from, from anyone. I could put it in three words, disdain, hostility and indifference. Yeah, I agree. And uh, there were some terrible circumstances. One of our lads came back with the first group. There was nobody to give him a warrant to go back to Perth where he lived. There was nobody to give him any money and it was a case of borrowing from people so that he could get home to see his parents. Indifference. So, Bob, how do you go from there and try and slide back into life at home? I was a bit fortunate, really. Um, I'd been in the Navy for some years and I was married and uh, I was sent down to Victoria with two jobs. One was the SNO Point Cook and the other one was the Junior Officer's Training Officer at HMA Cerberus. It was a wonderful two years away from all the acid that was going on with some of my mates and I was pretty well protected. But once I heard all the stories about what was happening to the sailors, I became totally disgusted with the whole system. I guess the three of us were very fortunate because we all had families, loving, caring families, and that made a huge amount of difference. For myself, I went back to the Naval Air Station, went back to flying for a while, that's why I felt so easy, even though I was pretty well ignored, except for the man, the naval officer, who came to meet us at Sydney off his own bat, not sent by the Navy. He came there to make sure we could get home. The reactions did vary. When I came back, I went straight to the frontline squadron, and they were good. They welcomed me. After doing a year, I then went back to a second-line squadron, and the reception was hostile. At that stage, I probably had close to 2,000 hours. And anything that that outfit could do to bring me down, they tried. And the final one was when they tried to put me up as co-pilot to students who had 10 hours on tight, not doing to anybody else, anything to... And that was the time I drew the line and said, it's not on. I wrote a long letter explaining what was going on to the captain. The next day, I was off the base. I was posted to Sydney as a liaison officer for two months not knowing what was going to happen. The upshot of it was they obviously did a lot of thinking about that because while I was up in Sydney, posting came out to do an instructor's course in the United Kingdom, which I might say I topped the flying course at that stage. But so even within the uh, uniform side, things were quite different. And of course, the public uh, had their go at people. It got to the stage, I think, in about 1970, when the senior commands, at least up in uh, Sydney, were telling their sailors not to wear the uniform to Garden Island, to put it in a knapsack, change on the base. So there was certainly hostility in the public. So those who had families, as David said, would get some comfort from that. But uh, the general public was either not interested or quite hostile. And I had another occasion of some hostility at a social event one time when it was introduced that I'd been to Vietnam. So uh, that was the upshot of it. And to top it off, I'd finally say that the, the National Servicemen Army, I'm talking of now, had a particularly difficult time because many of them finished their time in Vietnam, the two years, they came home and they were demobbed from the army. And they were gone, they were out in the public. They'll say indifference, hostility, they faced and, and no support. The plight of soldiers in the jungle in Vietnam is well known. However, the Air Force's contribution is less known and indeed the Navy's, again, is barely known other than 
the Vung Tang Ferry. But this flying unit called EMU, your unit, is really so underrecognized. I went to the War Memorial yesterday and I had to look for a long time. And in the corner of the Vietnam section, there is a mannequin and it's in pilot rig and it's your unit. But so little is known about you guys. And arguably, the action that you saw in your helicopters was in the thick of it all the time. Yeah, the thing that uh, I find amazing out of it is that we talk of our close relationship with America and the Alliance. This was the perfect example of a small unit who did make a difference because of the experience level we, we took there and it was greatly received by uh, the Americans at the time. And the fact that uh, we still hear the Prime Minister was in America recently talking about the mateship, yet nothing was mentioned about this small number of people who fought and lived and died with the American Army. See, sadly, Vic, they just don't know their history. I got an email from my friend in uh, Alabama. He's done a lot to do, make sure our contribution is remembered in America. And now, every year at our memorial that we put up in 2005, they have an Anzac Day service. And he sent me a little crypto message the other day. He said, Malcolm Turnbull talked about mateship, but he didn't mention anything about our mateship. When you go to mateship, the commander of the PAUs in Swanlock, I kept in contact with him for a little while, and he arrived the day before I was married. He came out for, for my wedding. On that day, my wife wanted some particular flowers to put in her bouquet, so we took the train from Melbourne up into town because the flowers weren't down in Frankston, and there he was, straight out of the war zone, carrying a whole, both carrying a whole bunch of flowers. How did you guys find the Welcome Home March in 1987? I went to it. Up until then, I'd avoided any remembrance. I hadn't gone to the uh, Anzac Day, so it was quite meaningful. After that, I tended to go along. So, yes, it was a very worthwhile thing. Uh, it might have been a long time coming, but I think sometimes even recognition that comes many years after the event is, is worth it. Yes, I, I went to the Welcome Back March. I, I actually carried the, the flag for Tony Casadillo, who was killed up there. Yeah, I went to the march. Uh, it was a long time coming, but it was certainly necessary. And the public reaction was just so different from what the public's reaction was before that. And ever since then, you know, I tend to show my face at these reunions and Anzac Day. But 1976 Anzac Day, I was serving on the command staff in Sydney. I'd walked across to Hyde Park from Cuttable, where I was living, to attend the Anzac Day dawn service. On my way back to Cuttable, I was in uniform. I was surrounded by three women in black robes and they gave me a hard time and they spat on my medals. I didn't wear those medals even at the Welcome Home Parade. Having uh, talked about, I just want to make one thing, talking about the, the uh, hostility and so forth, I say that not from the point of view that I expect anybody to offer any sympathy because out of this whole service... I came back and I had a lot more gravel in my guts uh, over my years of service. I developed the ability to stand up and question senior officers. I'm very sceptical of politicians these days. I suppose the only downside was I tend to have old friends and very old friends. I, I enjoy social company, but from that, if I meet a new person, I probably don't follow up on it because not of uh, losing people in the war because I treasure those guys I lost. Picking who was, what the angle was from the people who were going to talk with in those years. As Bob was saying, after the uh, the march back home, uh, it was astonishing to see the different people. It was all over a different nation. Bob, how do you look back at Vietnam today? I've probably developed a bit of scepticism towards politicians. Now, we're terribly badly served by our current politicians even. It really makes you think just how much they think and care about the long term of their decisions. The main thing that I remember is the people around me, the Vietnamese people around me at Swanlock, because that area was very heavily uh, sprayed with Agent Orange. And I just think that gets into the waterways, so it gets into the children, the parents, the whoever's left there. I guess that's the thing that, that thing and the fact that the US intelligence 
hierarchy were so disregarding of the information we were passing through. And Vic, what's your feelings about Vietnam today? When I meet uh, Vietnamese who live out here, I almost apologise that we lost. But it's caused me to think a lot. When people talk about that war, it could have been avoided and we shouldn't have been there. I will agree with that up until 1949. If the decolonisation had been started, as Richard started to do, and would have started that before China was lost to communism, there was a window of opportunity in there to come up and let them unify and realise it probably was overall nationalism, but they were communists as well, and we could have probably lived with it. But it just shows that these windows of opportunity that politicians and uh, diplomats have, they will close. And when they make the wrong decisions or don't do the make a, a sensible decision at a certain time, it's over. Just as with that uh, Gulf Water removed Saddam Hussein, they made some terrible decisions after that, partly disbanding the Iraqi army and the destabilisation that, that occurred, it didn't cause ISIL, but it created the destabilisation that allowed them to sweep through. And you don't rebuild an army in 10 years. They insisted on, as I say, getting rid of the Iraqi army and what happened when ISIL came, they weren't ready to stand their ground. So it's just caused me to think a lot about the time in history. And when somebody argues a particular point with me, my first question to them is, what point in history are you starting your argument? I wish the politicians would do that. Vic, David and Bob, you've all served your country with distinction, valour and honour. Thank you very much for your service and thank you for coming and telling us about the EMU story today. Thank you for your Thank you for the opportunity. There was a fantastic development after I spoke with Vic, David and Bob. In August 2018, the Royal Australian Navy Helicopter Flight Vietnam was awarded the Australian Unit Citation for Gallantry. The presentation was made at the Australian War Memorial by His Excellency General the Honourable Sir Peter Cosgrove and Vice Admiral Tim Barrett. Some say that it was a long time coming. I know from further correspondence with these gentlemen that the words of the citation were very humbling and it shows a generous spirit so many years after the war by the awards tribunal and the Governor-General. The citation reads, For acts of extraordinary gallantry in action in South Vietnam from October 1967 to June 1971, the Royal Australian Navy Helicopter Flight Vietnam, as part of the Experimental Military Unit of the United States Army 135th Assault Helicopter Company, exhibited exceptional and extraordinary gallantry whilst engaged in offensive operations continuously throughout its four-year deployment. This exceptional gallantry was enabled by the efforts of the entire Royal Australian Navy helicopter Flight Vietnam. The flight was a unique unit and every member, regardless of mustering or category, either performed their duties with demonstrable gallantry or were used in roles for which they were not trained and still perform bravely. The administrative and maintenance staff were required to assist in the provision of base security in addition to their normal duties, and almost all of the support personnel regularly volunteered to act as aircrew employed as door gunners and crew chiefs. This was in addition to the extremely long maintenance hours required to support the tempo of operations conducted by the flight. Over the course of operations in Vietnam, the flight accumulated a formidable record of operational flight hours and citations for individual gallantry. This has set it apart from other operational units. While exposed to hostile fire and at great personal risk, aircrew flew on average 50% more operational hours per month than any other Australian aircrew in comparable roles with other units. Aircrew were constantly engaged by the enemy, faced the danger of booby-trapped landing zones and frequently found themselves fired upon by friendly forces. The personnel who flew with the flight arguably saw the most intense combat of any Royal Australian Navy personnel in the war, despite the fact that none of the personnel had previous operational service and none had been under fire. They were courageous in battle, exhibited exceptional and extraordinary gallantry, and did so with great skill and heroic dedication in executing a mission far removed from those for which they had been trained. 
Over the period of the flight's operations in South Vietnam, five members of the unit died and 22 were wounded in action. The extraordinary gallantry, dedication to duty and astonishing record of the Royal Australian Navy helicopter flight Vietnam, conducting tasks far removed from the expectations of naval service, has forever set it apart from other units. The extraordinary acts of gallantry and heroism consistently displayed by the personnel, combined with their loyal devotion to duty, were in keeping with the finest traditions of the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian Defence Force. We have interviewed a number of other Vietnam veterans on this podcast. Of particular interest might be last year's panel, titled Panel, The Vietnam War where Angus interviewed four veterans of that conflict. An engineer, a soldier, a dentist, and a pilot. Subscribe to our email newsletter at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod, and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.